Let's turn again to Galatians chapter 6, beginning with verse 6. Galatians chapter 6, beginning with verse 6. I'm going to read through verse 10. We're going to most, uh, this week will be our second week, focusing on verse 6, and then next week, I promise, we'll move on to verse 7 at least. Um, This is the Word of God, and it is forever true. The one who has taught the Word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Jesus himself taught this same principle when he sent out the twelve on their mission. If you look back at Matthew chapter 10, you'll see that Jesus, when he sends them out, says this. He says, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff. And then he says this. He says, for the worker is worthy of his support. In other words, as Jesus set out the disciples, he was pleased to set it up in such a way that they were not able to provide for themselves and had to depend upon the people they were going to minister to uh, for their sustenance, for everything they needed. And if you go on and read in the text, you'll find out that um, he decreed that not just blessings were to go on the homes that did support him, but cursings and and rejection and negative consequences were to come on those who would not support his his preachers that he was sending out. It's a very serious thing. There's today part of our um, dislike of authority extends to the pulpit, and we're all Protestants, and so you know, deep in our ethos is rebellion. Uh, Ken, that, that's that's a gimme for you. Um, So we look at the issue of authority and we think what it means to be a Protestant is to reject any authority. We reject the Pope. We reject everything. Um, But if the pastor can worm his way into our hearts and and somehow get us to like him, then we might be willing to accept a certain amount of food from his hand. Well, that's not the way we're supposed to approach the preaching of the Word. We're supposed to approach it like I prayed earlier, like the little birds that tip their heads back and open their mouths. And you say, yeah, but there are many false shepherds. And I say, yep, and there are many false fathers and mothers, many false husbands. And all of life is a question of whether you're going to live by faith or not. And so, if you as a woman had a bad dad, you can make a decision that you're going to spend your entire life keeping yourself from ever being vulnerable to another man again in your life. That's your choice. It's not walking by faith. Uh, If we end up having a society where no woman is ever vulnerable to any man, what a loveless place it'll be. There will be no mothers for children, no wives for husbands, no grandmothers. Everybody will be busy making sure that they can provide for themselves. And of course, you recognize that's what's happening in our country. And so what we need to do is we need to not think that being a Protestant means you reject the authority that God has rightfully placed over you in the church. Yes, it's dangerous. Yes, at points of time in history, it's been used to the destruction of souls. 
but something that's used invalidly does not mean that it can't be used validly. Something that you've seen used to destroy doesn't mean that you should utterly reject it. And so it's good that you're here. It's good that you're vulnerable to me being an unfaithful shepherd this morning. Now, if you ask the truth, there's a guy named Ron Enroth who's made a lot of money off writing books about unfaithful shepherds. He teaches out at Westmont. He might be done now. I'm not sure. He's getting that age. And Ron Enroth has spent his life primarily making the point that there are many intrusive and dictatorial and dogmatic shepherds and that they're going around the country harming the churches, all right, and that they use churches to harm the individual sheep. And one classic illustration he uses is a pastor that has a softball team out in L.A. somewhere, and the pastor goes out and he's watching the team and he's furious that the team isn't playing as well as it should. And so the pastor, like, tells them not to put somebody at bat. I forget how the story really goes. And they go ahead and put the person at bat. So the pastor makes a rule that the next game they play, all of them have to play left-handed. And this is Ron Enroth's way of showing you how awful pastors are and how you need to guard yourself against them. Now, how many of you have ever played on a church softball team? And how many of you have had the pastor making the decisions who bats and when? I don't see a hand. And how many of you, when he's mad at you, have, have, have had to make a rule that you can't play right-handed next week, that you have to play left-handed? Right. How many of you have had anything analogous to that? Now, go ahead, raise your hands. There are some of you that have. But again, let me ask you the question, what do we do? Having heard a story out in California and... I won't say it, but you all know what I'm thinking. You know, out in California, you hear a story about somebody that's done something like that. And so we here in Bloomington, like, keep ourselves from being vulnerable to false shepherds by making sure we don't submit, we don't listen, we don't honor, we don't... It's just craziness. Uh, Yes, there are bad presidents, bad kings, bad fathers, bad husbands, bad pastors, bad elders... There are bad mothers. And God has been pleased to make us dependent upon all of them. And we need to honor them. Remember the little picture of uh, Noah. He's drunk and naked in his tent. And naked probably means something beyond naked because of the use of naked in the Old Testament. One son does what? Goes out and laughs and tells everybody about it. The other two sons, they back into the tent and they drop a blanket on their father to cover his nakedness without looking at him. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And when the Lord sent out the disciples, he said, the worker is worthy of his support. And in, in the United States today, all this, this rebellion against authority and the bad fathers and bad pastors we've had causes us to say, well, really, the way to satisfy this situation is for us to have pastors who have a job other than the ministry. After all, these guys are lazy dogs. They've never worked an honest day in their lives. And, you know, we can't be vulnerable to that sort of thing anymore. Now, would you know that that's a direct statement of what Martin Luther said about pastors when he was in the Reformation? I could take his commentary right here 
And uh, he says this. I'm, see, I'm not going to find it, and that's why I can't ever use these things. But what he says is, you know, when the Reformation first started, I had it in my mind because of how many bad priests there were, pastors, that we should never pay pastors anymore. And that's interesting. Again, this is, this is history repeating itself, you know. Don't want to be vulnerable, so the way to handle it is not pay them. Well, let's remember that it's not the nasty dude Paul, and I'm not, I don't mean that, but that's how we all think of Paul. And it's not Peter, and it's not John, and it's not Barnabas. Who is it who said what? The worker is worthy of his support directly in the context of preaching and of feeding the people from the Word. Who said it? It's Jesus who said it. So when somebody gets on their, on their high horse, on a blog, I have this dude, he's constantly visiting my blog, and he's constantly railing against pastors. He's a missionary kid from Asia. I have no idea what went wrong in his past, but he's always showing up and just nasty, you know. And uh, so when we hear that kind of thing, we don't allow ourselves to get sucked in. There are bad pastors, bad fathers, but we go ahead and honor the office. And we honor it by obeying where Jesus says the worker is worthy of his hire. Now, Paul taught the Corinthian church to be faithful in supporting their teachers. And it's very interesting. People will use this text to oppose paying preachers. Paul said this, he said, am I not free, 1 Corinthians 9.1, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, those of you who are vegans, listen. It is written in the Old Testament... You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. We'd just love to say, hey, there we have an indication that God cares about animals. Yes, God does care about animals, but this is not the place to look for it. Because listen to how the Holy Spirit, now you might say no, the Apostle Paul. I say no. No man ever, ever wrote any scripture out of his own inclinations, but holy men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this is the Holy Spirit teaching you the meaning of this Old Testament thing about oxen. Ready? Okay, it says this, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Now, when I read that, I revolted against it in preparing to preach. I thought, oh my. Why? Because I'm a creature of my culture and I'd love to find God being a vegan. You know, because it's so sensitive and, and so kind and so gentle. You know, no blood, no gore. You know, you just graze on grass. You know, and acorns and bark. So it says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament, the Holy Spirit says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Now, it's very clear. We're talking species, not animals, but man. Why man? Because man bears the image of God. 
It's not that God doesn't care about animals, doesn't honor them. God often commands us not to be cruel. God even says about uh, the situation in Nineveh, you know, you don't care, Jonah, about the people, and, and don't you realize I care about the people and I care about the animals of Nineveh. So, again, the, the issue is not that God doesn't care about animals, but precisely at this place you have to hear what God is saying to us through this. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes. So you ask the question, and here's the answer. Yes, for our sake it was written. In other words, the, 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 the species of man. For our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope, the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. And then he, he applies it to himself and to other preachers. And he says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Others, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Now listen to this. Then he says this. He says, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. The Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. The Lord, not Paul, the Lord. But I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. I'm not writing this to get money from you, Corinthians. <laughs> and, and you know what? At that point, what he says is, I would not take any money from you. Now, if you, you understand what's going on here. The principle, very clear. We're not talking oxen, we're talking people. We're not talking people, we're talking farmer. Farmers should not have to do the farming. A farmer should not have to sit in the milking parlor twice a day or three times a day and not get the benefit, right? It makes sense. Then he says, okay, what about those whose farming is caring for the flock of sheep known as the church? Should they not benefit? Didn't our Lord say they should benefit? See how he's moving. And then he says, and, and, and don't I have that right? Haven't I been faithful to you? And everybody's brought along. They're all right here. And then he goes like this. And he jumps down, you know, and he says, I wouldn't take your money. And that's really what he says. Now, why would he say that? Huh? Why would he say that? Have you ever said to somebody, I wouldn't take your money? Somebody that owes you money. What's going on there? Well, you don't take money when money somehow attacks your integrity to take it. You know, like for instance, I've had some uh, weddings where in the process of the marriage happening, uh, one of the parents or more of the parents have almost killed their children. Now, none of you have ever had this experience, right? You know, where there's a power play between the two families or a power play between a husband who's been an adulterer and his wife and she's using this wedding to punish her husband. Or they don't like the fact that their children have become Christians and they don't really want a church wedding and they certainly don't want the church people at the wedding. And so everything about the wedding becomes a battle. Everything, right? And so because I'm the pastor, and I do the premarital counseling, I hear about it, and then you get to the rehearsal, and the rehearsal's a nightmare because you can cut the air with a knife. And then the wedding happens, and you just are so grateful when it's over. 
It's just, you're so grateful when it's over. And then, and it's typical, it's the person that's caused the most problem. They come up to you with your blood money. You know, they say, well, yeah, you're, you know, the average wedding, $27,500, and it's almost always $50 to the pastor. Um, they come up to you with this $50, and can you imagine that sometimes, I don't say I wouldn't touch your money, I just smile, and I say, no, really, really, I, I couldn't. <laughs> Now, some of you, I haven't taken money because I know you're poor and I wouldn't do it because I love you. So don't think that I was operating on principle with you. Um, And the truth is, a pastor who's supported by a church doesn't need any money for doing a wedding. Nevertheless, you understand why sometimes I won't take money. Sometimes funerals are that way. I won't take money for a funeral. Why? Well, Paul wouldn't take money from the Corinthians. Why? Did you know that while he was serving... He did receive money from other churches. Let's say I were to leave Church of the Good Shepherd and I were to go out east someplace, Philadelphia, right? And the church at Philadelphia was a very, very wealthy church. But it was a church that had grown accustomed to living in sin and to having a shepherd who was not willing to confront the sin, but was willing to get up into the pulpit and, and expound with, with grandeur in a different voice, you know? And, and the pipe organ and, you know, you know, and then all of a sudden I come there and I'm in deadly earnest. <laughs> and then they start fighting against me. They don't want to hear the word. They don't want anybody counseling them in private to repent. They don't want the communion table to be fenced. They want a formal religion, right? Right. Now, can you imagine how, if I moved to that church, how I would receive money from you but not from them? Why? Well, because I know that we love each other, that we trust each other, and there's absolutely no attempt on your part as a congregation to silence me by paying me. But that wasn't the case with the Corinthian church. Paul knew that if he took money from them, that the Word of God would be harmed. And here's a principle again. You cannot trust pastors to be pastors without thinking discriminating thoughts about them. If you have a pastor who doesn't care about whether or not you obey the Word of God, don't pay him. And on the opposite side, if you're a shepherd, and many of you are looking to become shepherds, if you're a shepherd and they're willing to pay you without being obedient, don't touch their blood money. You know, does this make sense to you? Do you understand what I'm saying? When I was a little kid, my father uh, did not have the best teenager in the world. That's me. And every year, the birthdays would come along, and, and I would say to my dad, I'd say, Dad, what would you like for your birthday? And some of you have been here long enough to know what his, his answer always was. In fact, uh, anybody remember? An obedient son. And it just deflated me. You know, you'd like to have obedience and honor be something that you can do once a year. You know, and what my dad said is, no, every day, son, and without the every day, don't buy me a tie. Does that make sense? Huh? So if I brought my dad a tie, made this big show of being a son that honored him, here's your tie, dad. 
I picked it out just for you. Do you like it, Dad? Is he going to be able to receive that gift? Well, yeah, he'd probably be a gentleman, take it. But does he really receive that gift? The answer is no. He just looks at me and says, would you be an obedient son? And the same thing is true of shepherds. If you have a shepherd who doesn't care if you obey the Word of God, who never says to you in person what he said from the pulpit, who never points out the difference between what you're doing and what the Word of God says, you shouldn't pay him. And if he doesn't care if you obey and is happy to take your money, he's corrupt. Does this make sense? In other words, this issue, those of you who are taught should share all good things with your teacher, has this huge network of foundation, of understandings, of relationships. Of, it's just like this huge, huge underlying mass upon which that sits. And the mass that's under it is you have any concept at all of a pastor being your shepherd. If you don't have any expectation that when it comes to your soul, you need somebody to guide you, then why would you ever even be aware of who's teaching you? You'd be at home or on the golf course or out with your boat Sunday morning. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones said, by all means, if people don't want to be in church on Sunday morning, don't be. You know, we have work to do. All right. Not just that you have an expectation that you need a shepherd, but that you're able to discriminate between those who are faithful shepherds and those who are unfaithful. That you're able to discriminate what teaching is. That you're able to discriminate what teaching is serious and what is unserious. Now, again, uh, Calvin on this text says that a pastor is a foster father. All right. In other words, all authority is fatherhood. Because God is the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. So, if the pastor is a father to the household of faith, then it makes sense that when we think about our earthly fathers, we'll again understand this well. Now, some of you have fathers who never really care if you obey them. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I know it's true. Because I've watched some of you grow up. And... What I notice is that many of us as fathers are tempted to only discipline for our convenience. In other words, yeah, I use the illustration that if you're watching a football game and you want a beer, you say to your son, go get me a beer. He brings the beer in. You don't say thank you. You absentmindedly take it. You rivet it on the television. But then in a few minutes, your son starts making noise on the living room floor. And the noise begins to interfere with your ability to hear the announcer and to keep your attention where it, it belongs, which is on the football game. And so as you're sitting there, you turn to your son and you say, would you be quiet? Don't you see I'm, somebody's trying to watch television here? Get outside. And that's about the level of discipline that many of us have gotten with our dads. If we're a nuisance, they'll let us know. But anything beyond that, it just doesn't happen. You know, you, you go out drunk, drive, get busted, get a DWI. The cops, uh, you know, have you in jail. He has to come down and bail you out. You can depend upon the fact that you will hear it then. You'll get disciplined. But not disciplined because he taught you that you shouldn't drink and drive. Not disciplined because he taught you the proper use of alcohol or the improper use. But rather disciplined because you've inconvenienced him and undoubtedly you'll appear in the paper and humiliate him. 
I was interested a few weeks ago to read in a magazine an article on the dog whisperer. And the whole article was about how this, this, uh, this, this dude out in L.A. Um, trains dogs. Now, I understand there's a TV show on it. I haven't seen the TV show, but I've read a long article about him. And when you read the article, you know, they, the, 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 the journalists went into various homes where there were dogs that were absolutely nightmares, you know, where the minute they walked in, the woman would show scars up and down her arms from this dog she just cherishes, you know. And oftentimes it was tiny dog. It wasn't pit bull, you know, just this little, like, uh, so anyhow, he goes into the house and as soon as he goes in the house, he asks a few questions, but then he looks at the dog and he says, sit, and the dog sits. He says, stand, the dog stands. He says, turn around, the dogs turn around. He says, no, the dog doesn't. And the owner is sitting there flabbergasted, thought they were going to have to put the dog to sleep, you know. So then they go into a long explanation of why dogs obey him immediately. And you know what it's all about? He never sends mixed messages. And then they talk about how chimpanzees are much brighter than dogs, but you take three cups and you put food under one cup. You take your finger, you point to the cup that has the food under it, to the chimpanzee, much brighter. The chimpanzee will never get it right which cup the food is under. Dog, dumb, point to the cup. Instantly the dog knows which cup and flips it over and gets the food. Why? Because dogs have been trained to absolutely read the man or the woman correctly. They are hypersensitive to every nuance of our bodies. So then they talk to some ballet teacher at NYU or something. And she begins to describe how the body has to be in harmony with the theme. You know? And then they talk, and, and the article ends up to me, making the point that the reason children don't obey is that the parents say don't when they really mean do. Yes, when they really mean no. Uh, uh, get out of here when they really mean, you know, I wish you'd stay, but be nicer to me. You know, in other words, we're constantly sending mixed messages to our children uh, or we're only dealing with them uh, for our own convenience. Is that what you expect from your pastor? You expect your pastor to get up in the pulpit and say one thing, but get out of the pulpit and chill out. You know, is that what you want from a pastor? Eh, hmm, some of you are shaking your head no, but I, I want to say yes. You know, you really do want that. You really do want a father who doesn't care what you do as long as it's out of sight. And then all of a sudden, a young man who's a teenager, who's not a good student, never spends any time preparing for his classes, he all of a sudden signs up for geometry at Elgin High School, and he gets Mrs. McLean. <laughs> and everything about Mrs. McLean is real serious. <laughs> This is me, okay? It's like all the other teachers are happy for me to sit there. I always used to put my head on my arm and read a novel in my lap during class. I hated school. Hated it until I got to college. But Mrs. McLean, she really cared about her subject, geometry. I hated math. 
And Mrs. McLean had the temerity to give me a D my first term. You know, the rest of them, anybody got C's. Mrs. McLean gave me a D. And guess what? I fell in love with Mrs. McLean. And I fell in love with geometry. There was no yes and no from Mrs. McLean. It was just all no to me. <laughs> you know? And so I studied geometry and I found out geometry was logical, not like algebra. Algebra was just, they say they're talking about numbers and then use letters. I could never get it with algebra. You know? But geometry, that was logic. And guess what? I got A's in geometry. I think it was the only class I got A's in in high school. Graduated in the bottom half of Elgin High School with less than a 3-0 average. <laughs> okay. Pastors. You have to make discriminations about them. You have to value them. You have to care about them enough to judge them. And then once you've judged them, whether or not they're faithful, not whether what they're saying to you right now is faithful. I mean, you have to do that if they're not speaking Scripture to you. But your judgments need to be big ones as you choose a church because you're vulnerable to your pastor. Then, having made that judgment, you submit to them. And if you don't submit, I won't take your money. Do you understand how this all works? That's how high we value. That's how high we place an emphasis on the, on, on the calling of a shepherd. Okay? Now, this morning, we have a man with us who has been one of my principal encouragers in this. He just walked in. He didn't know I was going to use him as a sermon illustration. This is a man who has been in a denomination which has progressively honored sodomy. It's a denomination that I used to be in. And my churches and I left after many years because we simply could not abide with the godlessness of this denomination. It's the Presbyterian Church USA. This summer it became apparent that a committee called the Peace, Unity, and Purity Committee, uh, which of course had nothing to do with peace, unity, or purity. It's a rule about naming committees. <laughs> you know. Um, had come up with a recommendation whereby they were going to say that we should all just go into la-la land, existential la-la land, let everybody have a local option, let everybody, each man would do that which was right in his own eyes, just like judges. And uh, this man let it be known publicly when this happened that if the General Assembly this last summer were to make a decision to allow those who are committing sexual sin and were committed to it and claimed that it was God's blessing to them, you understand, that if the denomination said that this would be its policy to allow this, that he would leave the denomination because he couldn't in conscience continue to be a pastor. So I watched him and we met and... Uh, he, he has had a role in helping to teach our pastor's college, but you haven't known him. Um, and then, sure enough, the denomination did it this summer. And uh, about two weeks ago, he sent me the sermon that he preached to his congregation. And in that sermon, he was saying goodbye to his flock. It was a powerful sermon. I'm going to put it up on the, web, on the blog so all of you can read it. Um, but the part that I found most moving was where he talked to those 
among his, his, his flock who had always disliked him and wanted him to leave. And I'm going to get it wrong somewhat, but in talking to them, what he said to them was, um, some of you think probably that I get a kick out of angering you. You probably think that I'm just a little bit uh, uh, take delight in, in disappointing you. Um, but, but let me assure you, I do know how to please you. If what it's about is pleasing you, I could do it very well. But that's not what it's about. What it's about is honoring Jesus Christ. And he said, that requires me to leave you now. And in fact, the final word of his sermon is Godspeed. But it's very clear. Do you know who else did a sermon like that? Where he sets, now choose life. Here I've set before you life and death. He's saying goodbye and he says, now choose life so that you and your children may live. Remember that? Remember Moses? Who else did this? Joshua? Did I get that wrong? I probably did. Sorry. Who else did it in time in, in, in our own time and country? Well, not our own time, but I consider it our time, which just goes to show. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards. You get on the Internet and you read a copy of Jonathan Edwards' farewell sermon. Now I set before you life and death. Choose life so that you and your children may live. Brothers and sisters, we have a long, long history of faithful shepherds who have been willing to not be paid and to die for the sake of your souls. And we need to honor them because the world is filled with those who have grown rich off the ministry and have never, ever violated your body space. Do you understand that? Many of you have grown up and you've never been angry at a pastor. And I say a basic right every Christian has is to get angry at their pastor. But not angry because he tells you not to use your right hand next, next week when you play softball, but angry because he steps into your life and he says, how dare you date a non-believer? Do you know how many people we've lost at this church because of saying that with love and tears to people? You know how many? You know how many souls are lost because of a desperation about being married and so they go off and they marry someone who doesn't know the Lord? And I could go on and on and tell you the issues that people fall. It's real predictable. There's no new sins. You know, we all fall in the same ways. And we all fall often, and that includes your pastors. You know, you have a right to love your pastors, and you have a right to get angry at them. And they have a duty to warn you. And if all you've ever had is a pulpiteer in your life, you have not begun to be shepherded. No church should ever be a preaching pulpit. Do you understand that? A church is the household of faith. And that is the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's not DVDs you get from some national ministry where they have a real famous dude who makes lots of money off selling you DVDs. It's not Trinity Broadcasting Network where they sit on gold thrones in the middle of Los Angeles acting like they're Middle Eastern kings. It's not people that write books. I'm not saying none of these things can be good. People always misunderstand me and think, oh, you know, you're hitting up on all these bigwigs. Well, yeah, to some degree I am, but I'm teaching you to discriminate. 
what you need is you need to have the same intimacy with your shepherds as you have with your father. And if you haven't had a father who's ever said no and meant yet no and said it for the good of your soul, if you've never had a father who said, my son, give me your heart, which is a quote from the book of Proverbs, if your discipline has never been biblical and godly as a son, and you've never had a pastor, then I call you today as a gospel act, <laughs> as an evangelistic act, to believe again in fatherhood. And to come to the Father who gave you His Son. And to love the Son when He says, I am the Good Shepherd and the Good Shepherd gives up His life for His sheep. Do you understand? This is not a secondary matter that it doesn't really matter. This is a central matter of the Gospel. Jesus came as the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd, when the wolves attacked, Satan came to Adam in the garden. The Good Shepherd gave up His life for the sheep. That's the Gospel. And so how can you love the Good Shepherd? How can you come to the table and eat this meal and then have absolutely no commitment to the shepherding of your soul? Now, here, a flesh and blood jar of clay. The Bible says... Romans chapter 10. This is the Gospel. It says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Now you're all with me there, right? Nice Gospel? But then listen to what it says. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? Unless they, and how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And then it says, However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And it ends with this statement, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. So I call you this morning to believe in God the Father Almighty who has provided his son, his body, and his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus took your place. But I also call you to believe in Jesus as a shepherd of your soul and that he was pleased to appoint 12 apostles and that to this day he is pleased to appoint pastors and elders and fathers and deacons and Titus II women in his church who continue to shepherd your soul. And when they make you mad, particularly at that point, listen to them.
particularly at that point. No, I'm not saying they make you mad by telling you not to use your right hand in a softball game. That's just absurd. Anybody that would even bother recording that for posterity's sake is an idiot. I mean, why dignify such a man by writing him into a book? <laughs> and I'm not saying I'm not capable of doing something so, such, so stupid. Talk to my son. You know, I can do that. But man, if you get the message from that, that you're not going to be vulnerable to a bad husband and a bad father and a bad pastor and a bad elder and a bad small group leader, you've lost it. You need to love them. And then you need to give them every good thing. Yeah, you need to pay them, but you need to obey them. And without obedience, who wants your money? Is this all making sense? Okay. You all got it, right? Okay, let's pray.